You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Good evening, you're listening to 3RRR. Welcome to Plato's Cave, a film criticism show. My name is Thomas Cordwell. I'm joined by Josh Nelson and Alexandra Hello-Nicholas. We forgot to mention something important last week. I'm going to spring you on now, Josh. So it was our fourth anniversary last week. Aww. Aww. Yeah, not yours and mine. We, we, <laughs> uh, we go way we back. We do actually go that. way back. <laughs> uh, but Plato's Cave began as a podcast on the 5th of April 2011. It was uh, it was started by myself, Josh and Tara Judah, who were the original hosts, and since then... You know, we we went on the grid. We became a live broadcast show. Cerise Howard became part of the team. Uh, Cerise Howard, who is away this week and last week, we didn't even mention her last week. Cerise will be back. Uh, but, yeah, Cerise joined the team last year and, and Tara recently left to explore opportunities overseas and we've been fortunate enough to have Alexandra Heller-Nicholas sitting in as a guest host for the past couple of months. So I'm now extremely pleased to announce that Alex has been confirmed as a permanent member of the Plato's Cave team. Yay! Yay. <laughs> uh, she's been given the thumbs up by the powers that be here at Triple R. We've actually received nothing but glowing feedback about her contribution from m- many of you listening, so thank you. And yeah, we think you're great as well. Uh, in a very short amount of time, Alex has fitted right into how we approach film criticism, while also providing a fresh and unique perspective, style and knowledge of film history. So Alex, the show has become all the richer due to your involvement, and we're thrilled to have you officially on board. I'm going to do a big cry on radio now that's so sweet i'm so excited I'm, lo- I'm so 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 excited it's been so much fun so are we i mean now collectively our publication count just went up through the roof <laughs> i know you've you've raised our profile i, I bring the literary gravitas when's the next book coming out <laughs> october can we wait that long october yeah we the Suspiria is the book that you yes. um is the film that you've written your most recent book on so i reckon we might have to do a, a special on Suspiria and agenda later in the year. I can think of some good music that would go with that. I have absolutely, yeah, oh, you, can, you can totally take charge of the music that week. But look, let's look at tonight's show. We're going to start off with The Salt of the Earth, which is the latest documentary by Vim Vendors, uh, which he also directed with the son of the film's subject, the subject being the renowned photojournalist Sebastián Salgado. Uh, then a film we've been anticipating for quite some time now, Mummy, by the young French-Canadian auteur Xavier Dolan. And it, it really doesn't seem that long ago we were praising his previous film, Tom at the Farm. Uh, and we're going to finish the show taking a look at a recent home entertainment release, the Japanese animated World War II drama, Giovanni's Island. But let's take a look at The Salt of the Earth. Are you kicking things off on this one, Alex? I am. This Brilliant. is me. Well, The Salt of the Earth is a French-Brazilian co-production, uh, as you said, co-product, uh, sorry, co-directed by Vim Vendors and Giuliano Ribeiro Salgado. Um, it is effectively a biographical portrait of Brazilian photographer Sebastião Salgado. Now, I pretty much came in cold to this film. I really knew nothing about Salgado. Uh, but as the film progressed, I found that perhaps I knew a little bit more than I thought. I was, in fact, quite surprised how familiar his work was to me and how drummed into my psyche so many of his beautiful, disturbing photographs were. I guess his work falls under the umbrella loosely, or the, the bulk of his work falls loosely under the umbrella of social documentary photography. Whether we know his name or not, he's responsible for some of the most shocking and beautiful images from crisis zones from the late 20th century. Things like the Ethiopian famine, the war in Rwanda, the breakup 
uh, breakup of what is now the former Yugoslavia, the burning of the Kuwaiti oil films, uh, oil fields at the end of uh, Gulf War One. Yeah. Is that what we call I it? I guess so. Yeah. Um, the first I mean, Iraq invasion. Yes. Yeah. Um, these, are, I mean, these are really some of the most powerful images from these terrible events are shot from Salgado's camera. Um, the involvement of his son as co-director, I think, really gives us an eye to the very personal nature of this documentary. It's very much a personal journey of Sebastio's work, starting with his early life as an economist. Uh, there's a very strong focus on his family life in the film. And it really addresses you know, how he dealt being away from home. Um, most of all, I think it's how do you deal with being exposed to some of the most gruelling and shocking horrors of the last 50 years? What happens to your soul when you see that many dead children close up for that long? It's, it's not an easy film to watch, but it's a remarkable and an important one. As, the, as a documentary, um, it, there's a lot in there. There's a huge amount of information. Structurally, perhaps a little bit too much, I think would be the only complaint that I could think of in that some avenues of investigation are opened up and not pursued. This didn't bother me. I mean, this is a remarkable documentary. The subject is so rich. And Vendors is a grown-up. You know, Vendors can make a documentary. He's a grown-up who makes grown-up films. It really couldn't fail. His photography is... Salgado's photography is just, just so moving. You have to see it on a big screen to get the real impact of the scale of what he's doing. It's kind of part Bruegel, part Karl Marx. I kept thinking of um, Andreas Gursky when I was looking at a lot of his photographs, especially of the, uh, the gold mines that opened the film. But it's like Andreas Gursky with a soul. Hmm. Beautiful. With a soul, I think that's a really important distinction to make here. And this is something that, that one of my instant reactions to this film in the early stages when we're looking in the gold mine and he starts talking about his preoccupation or, or the subjects that he was preoccupied with in those early days of, of his photography were working class, you know, the salt of the earth. And that automatically sets off alarm bells in terms of is this going to be the fetishization of the working class? Is this going to be that almost a sort of colonialising gaze of, of let's look at the beauty of, of the working class? And I don't think it is. I don't think it is at all. And I think that's such an important distinction to make that his, his photography, and we see it particularly as we go into his later stages in Africa and so on, where the gaze is entirely empathetic. It's not fetishising, it's not an objectifying gaze. You know, there is pure empathy in the looks of his subjects that staring right back into the camera. And you see the toll it takes on him. And this is what makes this such a, a complex, dense documentary, is the way in which Vendors really has three, well, probably three key narrative strands, that is... The Vendor's own strand where he narrates his relationship to Salgado and the process of making this documentary and then you have Salgado as a subject himself talking about his his life basically which is interwoven throughout the documentary in a, often a non-chronological manner and then you have these photographic series, you know, the places and the people and the, his key subjects at various times and we get the political and the historical context of each of those and I thought there was such a kind of fascinating way in which it's about an individual but it's also about the individuals in the photographs and it's also about the context and the, and the politics of those. And that's something that's very difficult to pull off. And in that aspect, if not for other ones, this film reminded me at various points of Chris Marker's Sun Soleil because it has that sense of Extra the travelogue, cold. the ethnographic lens, mm. the, the self-reflexive commentary about what happens when a photographer takes an image and, and where does the power relationship between photographer and subject lie. And that's why I think this is a really, really important documentary in many ways. 
Oh, I couldn't agree more. And this is my second attempt to try to talk about this film, and hopefully, I won't end up choking back tears. And <laughs> did we well, all, did we all cry? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. I, in a really deep and profound way, I wept. That I valued. It was one yes. of those. <laughs> I'm feeling the humanity, and and I'm I'm feeling the sense of tragedy in a way that is entirely appropriate, and I think is the purpose of these photos. Um, uh, uh, I mentioned this now. Since seeing this film and talking about it the first time, I've discovered he has had a lot of criticism over the years at beautifying tragedy. Susan Sontag is one person who actually uh, criticised what he did, and I just couldn't disagree any more mm. w- with that because his photos are deeply beautiful. I mean, an amazing contrast between the blacks and the white, the incredible depth of field, uh, and the way he just so perfectly has captured a moment. But to, to, to suggest that there's sort of some inappropriate aesthetic in this just betrays my own emotional experience, which was looking at those photos and just my heart was bleeding because of the absolute appalling situation that he had captured. Um, not only alerting us to these horrible tragedies of, you know, a whole, a whole popular of people being wiped out because their government, for whatever reason, denied them food and resources. I mean, you know, these are horrible uh, crimes against humanity. And and you look into the sort of the the souls of these these photos, and he 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 gives you that human connection. So yeah, I don't think it's exploitive at all. And I think the way he composed the photo so carefully is what gives it its power. I mean, this is an artist. This still shows us that not anyone can be a photographer. It's not about picking up a camera and filming something and uploading it onto YouTube. There is a craft and there's an art here, and he's an absolute master of that art. Um, interesting, Josh, you said how you were worried about the fetishization of the working class. I had a, f- a similar fear at the start when I saw him going out into the uh, Indonesian rainforest. Yeah, the West Papua stuff, yeah. Yeah, and um, uh, photographing tribal people, and and I wonder if you're deliberately meant to sort of start to question maybe his um, motivations there. But by the end of the film, you realise why he's doing that. And he's doing that because he got fed up with humanity, or certainly modern humanity. And he, he sort of embarked on this very life-affirming project called the Genesis Project, where he wanted to capture um, nature in its kind of most pure form. And so he was looking at wildlife, and he was looking at people who still have somehow managed to live a very traditional tribal lifestyle. Um, and it's just the, the enormous integrity behind behind what it, what I what he did. Yeah, he's a smart man. Uh, he's a very compassionate man. And I think this is a really skillful documentary. I mean, I like the way it kind of mixes up his story, him talking about photo his photography, um, the relationship between him and his son. Even Vendors puts a little commentary in there about his connection. Until we get to that moment where we, he starts talking about Ethiopia and then Rwanda, and it just focuses solely on that, because what else can you do with that story? That there's nothing else to do but to show the photos and have his beautifully soft-spoken voice talk about his experiences. This is one of the best docos I've seen, like, full stop, I think. Yeah, no, I, I was very moved by it. The environmental aspect, I think if I read about it on paper, I would have rolled my eyes a little bit. I think I would have been a bit totally cynical. Totally know what you mean, yeah. But after going through, you go to Ethiopia, you go to Rwanda, you go through these these really significant historical events that are just so devastating and they're so personal, both in terms of his experience as a photographer and, of course, primarily, you know, that's never sacrificed for the people who are really suffering. By the end of the film, I'm, you know, if you want a, a unicorn on roller skates, break dancing on a, on a rainbow, I'll let's do it like whatever you want whatever gets me out of this documentary in one piece 
I'm all for it. <laughs> well, yeah, it works on, on two levels. One, it shows how he managed to kind of find a semblance of, of a soul that had been so clearly broken by Rwanda and Ethiopia in his almost return to home. I thought that was kind of a nice touch where he returns to South America mm. and to his sort of family home and starts replanting all these sort of trees, which have been decimated as well. I mean, there's still destruction around him, but he's finding some way to kind of restore that. You're right, it does sound kind of hokey. It sounds like an 80s animation film, which is foregrounding environmental things. <laughs> but it's as much about him as it is for us from a, from a, from a vendor's filmmaking point of view. I think we needed some catharsis because what I found interesting about this documentary from an emotional perspective is, and I think this gets back to what you were sort of um, touching on, Thomas, it doesn't aim for cheap emotional gratification. It doesn't sort of try and go, I'm going to show you this photo for shock and I'm going to try and manipulate you in this moment. For me, the, it works because it was a cumulative effect of, you know, I'm seeing this, I'm experiencing this. And like, I guess, him as a photographer, when by the time it got to Rwanda, when I just completely fell apart mm. it's also the same time that he fell apart as a, a human and as an artist so i think that's that's something that's really important now and it gets back to this ethical or moral question about what is the role of the photographer when you're showing dead bodies or you're photographing dead bodies and you're even in that environment um, to start with and it, it brought up a, a debate that was going on last week on social media about the kenyan massacre mm. and people posting photos on on facebook and twitter and was there any kind of responsibility and people saying that they shouldn't be posting and in, in some ways i think these these two things are very different we've got one who's taking phot- photographs for a specific context with a specific kind of empathetic lens and i think in some ways i was far more troubled by the the social mediatization of the kenyan massacre because it felt like such a kind of flippant i'm just going to post this and therefore i'm saying this is bad and then it was moving on his, his photographs demand attention they demand a kind of a an identification and this is something that I, I don't think we got with the recent kind of questions about what is that ethical role of the photographer with the the kenyan massacre yeah he, he just perfectly captures the moment and all the meaning of that moment um just quickly i love the idea that his project of regrowth was was very much a, a, a symbolic too of his own need to basically go home and to regrow to sort of rediscover human Humanity and, and to sort of start afresh because of his harrowing experiences. I think Vendors is so good at documenting other art forms. I mean, I am. Um, Pina is a masterpiece. I think it's his best film, actually. I, well, yeah, I, I mean, Pina is up there with this one for me. I, yeah. I, I, and, you know, I really. We talked about this when we reviewed Pina, but I really like the technique of not having the dancers speak to camera. Mm-hmm. The idea that they're, what they express is through is through their, their dance. And, and the, you know, the beautiful use of 3D in that film to create the kind of space that they express themselves in. And I love the way he had him commenting on the photos in this, that that very uh, amazing technique of sort of having the mirrored kind of image of the photograph. So you'd look at the photograph and then his his head, his face would kind of loom into it and sort of talk to the photograph and then sort of talk to the audience that way. It creates a beautifully intimate uh, connection. Yeah, I wasn't so sold on Pina though. I, uh, you know, I was struck by a lot of it. Some of those sequences didn't quite work for me at the time but I'm, I'm, look, I'm keen to revisit it because I, earlier this year, last year, I saw some of Vendor's earlier films, particularly his road movies, and this feels a bit like the road movie. This is a guy wandering from place to place trying to find himself while his his wife and his children are left behind and this is the iconic 
Vendors um, protagonist that we've seen in anything, everything from Paris, Texas. Texas. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Always a crisis of temporality with vendors at, at the core. Ooh, I think beautiful. of all of his films. I mean, it's, the, the, the Wings of Desire is the other one absolutely. that captures those moments. Though those still moments that are just so poetic in themselves. Time stretches yeah. and then time condenses. It's this beautiful, and I think the Salt of the Earth very much. I mean, I, I believe at the start of the film he quite explicitly talks about time travel, mm. and so you go from from gold miners to to the Indonesian uh, tribe. And you're, you're, you're moving across time. Like you were saying, there's a... Yeah, he's really manipulating this idea of... There is a narrative that runs through it, but it jumps about at times. And it, you're always aware of how time fluctuates in a vendor's film. We've been talking about The Salt of the Earth. It's screening at the moment. It's exclusive to Cinema Nova, and I hope we've conveyed that it's very much a film worth experiencing. Very, very emotional, but it, it's, it's extraordinarily rewarding as well. Three... Triple R. We're going to turn our attention now to Mummy, the the new film by former French-Canadian child actor Xavier Dolan, who across the five films he's written, directed, produced, sometimes acted in, sometimes edited, I believe he selects the music and uh, does the costuming as well, uh, he's somewhat established himself as a leading contemporary auteur filmmaker and he's, he's enjoying a, a career that filmmakers twice his age would be envious of. Uh, indeed, this film shared the prestigious jury prize uh, at the Cannes Film Festival along with Jean-Luc Godard's latest film. <laughs> it's extraordinary. Um, was the oldest and the youngest people there, I think. Probably. Yeah, there was some... Like, they kind of bookended the age. Yeah, that's kind of perfect, gaps. isn't it? Yeah. God, I would have been grumpy about it. I think God had's grumpy on God his own birthday. God bless him. <laughs> um, uh, where are we? Dolan's new film is Mummy. This is uh, thematically a, a return to the themes... Well, he's explored in all his films, but most specifically the themes he's explored in his debut film, I Killed My Mother, a semi-autobiographical film about a young man's difficult relationship with his single mother. I remember, Josh, you and I saw this together at MIFF. We did. We had a lot of fun watching this film. Yes, we did. <laughs> Dolan has since half-joked about how that film was about him expressing his various resentments towards his mother and how making this new film, Mummy, was his way of seeking her revenge on him. The film's about Di, uh, played by Dolan Regulo and Dorval. She's a tough but, but somewhat overwhelmed single mother in her 40s who has to take care of her hyperactive and unpredictable son, Steve, after he's kicked out of a juvenile uh, care centre. Uh, for starting a fire and assaulting another resident. Uh, curiously, Dolan often acts in his films. He doesn't in this one. He So rather than playing Steve, Dolan casts a guy called Antoine Olivier Pilon, who is a, a young actor who had a, a part in Dolan's Lawrence anyways. Um, if our sympathies were with Dolan's character in I Killed My Mother... I think they are very much with Die in, in Mummy. Steve is really hard work. He's racist. There's always the potential for violence. He's antisocial. He's quite sexually inappropriate. At the same time, though, he's extremely charismatic and charming. In, in a way, I think makes him more of a kind of reckless innocent rather than overtly manipulative. He's a bit like a toddler. He, he acts on impulse. And it's very hard for Di, or the audience for that matter, to completely dislike him, despite recognising how incredibly difficult it is for him to be around. Now, the really curious detail the film starts with is that this is a sort of imaginary future of Canada where a new law is being passed that allows parents to dump um, behaviourally disturbed or problem children at government facilities. So we were aware that Di, at any point, has the option of washing her hands off Steve, but she chooses not to, making 
this, among other things, I think a very powerful film about parental affection. The, the relationship I was really interested in, though, is that when the film introduces the character of Kyla, uh, played by Suzanne Clemon, who, again, appeared in Lawrence anyways with the rest of these actors. Kyla is a neighbour. She very much lives a life of a dutiful housewife and mother, to the, so much to the degree that she has this speech impediment that seems to suggest how inattention and disinterest in her over the years has sort of led to her symbolically losing her voice. Uh, when Kyla befriends Di and Steve, the trio becomes something of a family unit, and I think typical of Dolan's films, this challenges notions of gender roles and all ideas of fixed sexuality. This is where Dolan really is at his, at his strength. Um, stylistically, this film maintains that slightly hyperactive feel and kitsch visual aesthetic of, of Dolan's previous films. I think he's very much come from a tradition of melodrama and subversive cinema. He draws from Douglas Sirk, uh, Rainer Werner Fassbinder, even Todd Haynes, among many others. Uh, bold, most bold, though, is his decision to use a very radical aspect ratio in this film. It's one-to-one. So, basically, the, the film screen is a square. It's a box. It gives, it gives us a very cramped and claustrophobic feel, uh, not to mention something that looks like it may have been shot on a smartphone. And it very, I think it very successfully succeeds in portraying the world of the characters as limited, allowing for some very sort of uh, playful moments where that aspect ratio is changed to express short bursts of joy and freedom. I, um, I've really come 180 degrees on Dolan twice now. I loved I Killed His Mother... His next two films somewhat lost me, but I thought Tom at the Farm was amazing, and I'm also a really big fan of this. I have some reservations I may explore as we discuss it, but I thought this is just such a fascinating film from a a filmmaker who is just so inventive and unpredictable. Well, the weight of this film's reputation weighed heavily upon me as I embarked upon my maiden voyage into into Dolan waters. I'd never seen a Dolan is, film oh, before. So I, I popped my Dolan cherry, <laughs> okay. I believe is the technical phrase we're after. <laughs> I really didn't know what to expect. Um, I knew that there was a melodrama thing going on here. I absolutely was not prepared for the heavy influence of Sirk and Fassbinder in particular, mm-hmm. not not just thematically but also formally. Yeah. I think you can really feel those two particular uh, inspirations on this film. Um that's pretty much for me as good as it gets with melodrama. I, I really love melodrama when it's smart and not reduced to a soap opera. Uh, Dolan really understands the the potential complexities of melodrama on a really intuitive level. And I, I'm a US critic and academic Linda Williams had this beautiful definition of melodrama as a combination of action and pathos. And if there's two words that I was going to use to describe mummy, it's action and pathos. It's what it's all about. It's... It's a really moving, beautiful, intelligent film that shows that melodrama it can be executed really powerfully and really intelligently, both intellectually intelligently but also emotionally. Uh, and an emotional intelligence really underpins this film. I loved the formal experimentation. I loved that there was a sort of youthful cockiness to it, um, which is very much part of Dolan's reputation. My only criticism, should we go here? Go for it. Because yeah. I... That's what we do. My, my, <laughs> my, only, my only criticism, I, I hesitate to mention it because it is an aspect that a lot of people highlight as, as one of the best things about the film, was the soundtrack. Oh, I'm going to pick up on that. Go for no, it. You, you have your criticism. Uh, so the, the idea is that the, the soundtrack is a mixtape that the, uh, the father, the now absent father, has, has left. Um, and so the, uh, the son has a very strong 
relationship to this music, and this music provides the soundtrack for the film. So it's Dido and um, is that how you say it? Dido, uh, Dido, Dido. Apparently, and I wouldn't. O- Oasis, and so it's very nineties. Um, I love. It's a very cute idea, but for me, it came across as almost too cute and. A little bit obtrusive and dumb, even at points. I just felt uh, maybe this is more to do with me hating Oasis than it is actually kind of valid film criticism, technique-wise. But the soundtrack, I, I just thought it just didn't work for me as well as it worked for a lot of other people. I, I, I don't like his use of pop music. One of the reasons I really like Tom at the Farm is it was a composed score that evoked Bernard Herrmann. Uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm kind of with you on that. I don't like the way he uses pop music. Let's see if I can defend Dolan then. <laughs> um, I actually thought the use of music was one of the um, the things that struck me the most about this film and it, it's what really emphasised this film as a melodrama. I mean, I think it, it, the music is, is there from a production element point of view but it's also key in terms of the themes of the film in terms of how the characters express themselves. We see a number of scenes involving music and dance and and singing that are really key moments for all these characters. And when the film, I think it's almost the second or third scene in the film, and we see um, we see Di picking up Steve from the, the juvenile detention centre and we hear the Dido song, which is so cliché. It, you know, it's been used to death in, in everything from ER and all those sort of soap operas and everything in between. And I thought, there has to be another level to this. And maybe I'm trying to kind of find the wonder in the Wunderkind, but I felt there was something quite canny about the way he was using that song and the other ones, like the one, like Wonderwall and there's a Counting Crows song in there. And I, I think there's actually a level of cleverness where he's taking the cheese factor of those songs and they have such a, a cheese factor in that kind of their pop cultural sort of significance and toying with them and, and sort of almost almost in the same way that he's taking some of the tropes of melodrama and picking back the outer layers to show us the not necessarily the darkness but some of those key themes particularly in terms of sexuality underneath and where I started thinking that there was a bit more going on than just him defaulting to a pop soundtrack was when we get scenes like I think the one where he's playing Counting Crows and it's in the soundtrack so it's the non-diegetic music but we see Steve on a skateboard listening to rap music and we can tell from what he's singing that he's listening to something completely different which we don't have access to and that's when those competing diegetic, non-diegetic sounds and the way in which he employs that I thought there's something else going on like he's actually being quite clever and it's there in scenes where we have Steve and Di having two radios blaring at the same time when when he performs karaoke and, the other, and half the crowd aren't listening and they're telling him to sing something else. And I think it was so fascinating in terms of the way in which he repeatedly defaulted back to music as a way of trying to kind of situate these characters. And of course, when you have a character who has, for all intents and purposes, lost her voice, the character of Kyla, and then magically finds it with a kind of a... It sounded like a Celine Dion song. It may have even been a Celine Dion song. But yeah, I'm, I'm thinking that maybe is my feeble defence to sort of justify what is initially or could be interpreted as something very sort of cheap. Yeah. I think, Sorry. well, yeah, and the other thing, I guess, with Delane that I uh, was struck by in this film, which I think is showing another level of maturity, is he has these moments, these sort of flourishes with the, with the soundtrack, with the visual design of the film, but there's also some incredible subtlety here. Like, there's some remarkable subtlety. He just has a kind of an innate talent to know when to, to pull back, to not say, to show. And particularly with the Kyla character, there's, there's something that's this reference to her past. Her, and I mean, each of the characters has a traumatic past or a moment in their past and her past is never really explained but we get glimpses of 
uh, photographs of, of uh, a child who doesn't appear to be in the home anymore. And there's even uh, a reference earlier on with, with Di where she's washing Steve's underwear. And it's, again, there's something in that moment which testifies to something that's never spoken or enunciated. And I think that's what really won me over about this film, the strange mix of these incredibly subtle moments with the uh, exciting flourishes of what is still a 26-year-old filmmaker. <laughs> Show off. <laughs> what got me, even if I didn't like this film, which is very much not the case, I was extremely moved by it, I would fight with a knife in my teeth for Dolan just simply for the fact how beautifully he films women over 40. This is a film with two women over 40 mm. as central characters. He's done and that in a lot of his films. Yeah, It's remo- mm. like, Hollywood, listen up, mm. learn. These, these are incredible characters. They're not, they're not side, they're not small parts that are supporting buoyant, bouncy 20-somethings. You know, th- these are really rich female characters and he feels he feel, he films them warts and all you know that's the every wrinkle and little crevice and pause there's nothing romantic about it but but loving so loving and it's distinct to someone like pedro Almodovar, who's also credited for you know filming uh having women at the center of his films and filming a lot of older women i, I think Almodovar somewhat fetishizes that that female character quite a bit where i think dolan has a genuine affection and an interest like i think he's genuinely interested in what is going on in, the in, in their lives Absolutely. and in their stories and the way they relate a lot of us an interesting point of mm. comparison because he's another melodramatic yeah a lover of the melodramatic Draws he understands melodrama absolutely yeah. again mm. that cirque fazbinder lineage Remarkable. There is, there is actually a, a moment in this film that broke me as well. Um, so I should qualify this. I saw this film directly after I'd just walked out of The Salt of the Earth, so I was pretty shattered to begin with, so it was only a matter of time. But it happened in, some, in a place that was unexpected, and there's a, there's a flash-forward or a, a, a sequence oh, of a, a montage, which is a flash-forward <laughs> yeah. sequence. That broke me. And it killed me because, and again, this is where I'm, I think there's something more going on with the music. It, you know, taken in isolation, it seems cheap, over-the-top, hammy, ham-fisted, but given the context and the way in which he he sort of shoehorns that into the narrative at that particular juncture killed me because you know that what you're seeing isn't necessarily what's happened or, or will happen. In fact, Dolan actually appears as Steve in that I sequence. I thought that was oh, him. Well, I thought yes. that was him. So he has his, yes, ta- right, he has his too, tiny, yeah. tiny cameo yeah. as well. But yeah, that was the bit I completely fell apart and then me just too. sort of yeah. petered out to the end of the film. But uh, the, the, Brutal. It's one of the most brutal moments in the entire film, I think. Yeah, it's the same technique that Spike Lee used in 2015. Fifth Hour, was that the name hey. of it? Yeah, which I, I, I really liked in that film, but um, I think Dolan really executes it perfectly here. My feeling about Dolan is, though, I think he's brilliant and he's so intuitive and smart. I think he's still... He's got some maturing still to do. Like, I think the use of his music is really interesting, and the, the technique he does with things like the aspect ratio is really interesting, but it still does feel like someone being capital C, clever. I give him an awfully free pass because it works and it works effectively, but every now and then I kind of see the strings being pulled. I think he needs to spend more time editing his films. I think every film of his... I just have this sense of it needs to be tighter. Um, I, don't get me wrong, I still think he's an extraordinary artist and I think, you know, Mummy is an, an extraordinarily good film. It's really accomplished. It's, you know, it, it's, it's definitely one of the best films he has done. It's on par with me for Tom at the Farm. I can't wait to see what he does in about 10 years time though because I think he's going to get to the point where he pumps out absolute masterpieces. It's a bit of a double-edged sword I think on that front. I mean I think well god what was I doing at 26? I don't even want to go there. And that yeah I mean but, who might have say that yeah 20. <laughs> no that wasn't the gist. <laughs> I really there is a kind of cockiness 
or a brazenness mm. to his filmmaking that is Which really is energetic and exciting yeah. and new and fresh. And even when it doesn't work, it's it's fascinating. And the question is, will he lose that? We shall see. <laughs> Stay We've tuned. We're talking about Mummy. That's also screening exclusively at Cinema Nova. You're listening to Plato's Cave. This is Three Triple R. Three Triple R. You're listening to Plato's Cave here on 3 Triple R. Josh, we're going to take a look now at Giovanni's Island, a recent home entertainment release. Yeah, so Giovanni's Island is a Japanese animation from director Mizuho Nishikobo, um, a director I'm not particularly uh, familiar with. And this is not part of the kind of Miyazaki staple. This is not a Studio Ghibli work, so it's, it's a different production company. We often get used to just our experience of Japanese animation is limited to Studio Ghibli, which is not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, Giovanni's Island is uh, set on a small island of Shikutan, which is in the northeast of Japan, northeast coast of, of Hokkaido, although I think it's worth pointing out that it, it remains under Russian control, although it's a contested space. Japan are laying claim to it, and it's currently under the control of Russia. What, as of today, it's still... Still, yes. There was yeah, a peace right. treaty signed in the 50s which said that they would, the Russians would give it back to Japan under certain circumstances, which apparently are yet to be met. So it remains a kind of contested island and this is part of the the themes that run throughout Giovanni's Island because the film takes place just before uh, the end of World War II. It's a a small island it's predominantly a fishing village the focus is on two young brothers Junpei and Kanta we see the war end and then their life is sort of turned upside down again by the arrival of Russian or Soviet forces on the island who take control of it. This film is I guess very familiar in many ways it's the experience of children in well more post-war time here than, than wartime itself. Um, it's, a, I guess, a survival narrative in many ways, and as the narrative unfolds, it becomes more an internment camp story and a, and a kind of the disenfranchised masses post-war, which, again, are all things that are very familiar and almost synonymous with the experience of uh, particularly for films that deal with World War II. And there's a couple of points of reference here that I think it's worth pointing out. The film, in terms of the brothers, in terms of post-World War II Japan, reminded me a lot of Isao Takahata's 1988 film, which, speaking of films that have shattered us, <laughs> shattered me, Grave of the Fireflies. And from a stylistic point of view, this film felt at times like Mori Mas- Masaki's 1983 film Barefoot Gen, about the experience of a child post-Hiroshima. Uh, um, I think it's interesting in light of a, a comment that you made, Alex, a couple of weeks ago when we talked about 71, and that is the significance or the symbolic significance of, of children in the context of war narratives, and do you feel manipulated by having them there? And what is their role? And it's, it's interesting that so many of these Japanese films focus on these childhood relationships. And what I found my point of interest in this film was the way in which, like so many other war films outside of Japan as well, try and understand or try and experience the war through this strange interplay between reality and fantasy. And this is what really the, the film sort of takes its um, title from, is this idea of that the children have been reading this book, Night on the Galactic Railroad, quite a famous book in Japan by Kenji Miyazawa. Um, and that is their almost their release, their escape from the the traumas of war is this imagining of this train which is going to take them away, which is going to rescue them. And I thought that was fascinating because the train in European war films, is particularly World War II, is so synonymous with the death camps and and as a symbol of destruction and the the presence of technology and and mass death. So it 
was interesting here, I guess, that the Japanese take on the way in which the, um, uh, Nishikubo was using it had such a sort of a, a contrasting sense of, of relief and, and, and catharsis, I guess. I Look, this film absolutely had the desired effect on me that it was setting out to do and that I cried like a baby. Um, but I, I did so begrudgingly. I felt, I, I, back to what we were talking about with 71, I did feel pretty manipulated by it. Uh, I, I can't honestly say that I think that this film will have a lasting impact on me. I have to confess to being a little bit of an ignoramus too. I'd never heard of the Coral Islands dispute before I'd come across this film. So I absolutely wasn't prepared for where it was going and oh, what it was, was doing. I was the same. I had no idea. Um, anime is a bit of a blind spot for me. I, when I think of anime, I, it takes me back to the kind of bucket bong infested, re- regretful group houses of my youth, my seedy youth. Weird dudes who would play Legend of the Overfiend on a loop. Oh yeah, I'm, you know, all, I remember those. Guys. We're all having a little journey back <laughs> on our own little mystery trains. Um, for me, at best, uh, not just anime but animation, it, it really works at its optimum, when it does something that can never be achieved in live action. So I think of uh, Miyazaki, obviously, my, my favourite anime, Perfect Blue. These are the kind of films that really do something magical with the form. And I do think that Giovanni's Island does tick that box in terms of what it does with those scenes that you were talking about, Josh, the, the more fantastical ones with the, the children escaping into this beautiful world of imagination. Yep. Um, that's where it really worked for me. But this isn't Grave of the Fireflies by a long shot. Um, I, I really don't... It's a beautiful Blu-ray. It's a, it's a beautiful film to watch. I can't say that it's really going to have a stay in my memory for a long time. I kind of know what you mean. It's sort of... I, I did in, in, enjoy it a lot, but it, the Miyazaki magic... I mean, it's, it's, it's terrible that I think for so many people we associate now Japanese animation with what Studio Ghibli has done. But credit where it's due, Studio Ghibli has just transcended, I think, what was already a very strong genre and have done an extraordinary body of work. Um, so I'm sort of interested in, 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 although I was very moved watching this film and I completely agree that at times I was aware of being manipulated into feeling certain things, which I say did not get from the other films we've discussed mm-hmm. tonight... Um, you know, I sort of enjoyed this. I thought it looked absolutely stunning. And I would recommend people do actually watch this, especially if you're interested in animation. There's some extraordinary uh, landscape work in particular. I love the realisation of the fantasy elements. But yeah, I'm trying to work out why it hasn't had a, sort of a bigger effect on me. And I think partly because um, the, the fantasy elements I don't think are used nearly as... Uh, they're, they're lovely moments, but they're not used all that strongly or, or powerfully. I think they're simply there to give us a kind of sense of hope and life in a situation where actually there was no hope or life. You know, the kind of, this person may be dead, but they kind of live on. Um, the, the context of the book they kept on referencing was completely lost on me. I mean, I gather it, it is an important book in Japanese culture, but it wasn't really communicated in the film to a non-Japanese viewer, the significance of this book. It didn't feel structuring. Yeah, I couldn't the, figure the out why. The fantasy wasn't I, I, structuring. Yeah, mm. yeah, precisely. Um, I mean, and you, some weird animation too. It, it gets really cartoonish. There's quite a few times where the character's features kind of get almost a sort of Charlie Brownish, you know, when, when they shiver or sort of cry or, or it really breaks the realism when, when some of the characters, yeah, adopt that kind of highly stylized comic book look, which you don't get in the Ghibli films. That's true, actually. I think you've, you've nailed it. The, the, the key element that doesn't cohere this film or doesn't structure the film is that the fantasy is not quite there from the beginning. And if you think about uh, Miyazaki's final film... The, the Wind Rises. The Wind Rises, yeah. which opens with that extraordinary sequence about, you know... The, begins as a kind of a dream fantasy which turns mm. into this horrific nightmare of technology and, and 
bombs being dropped. This doesn't quite set up the relationship between fantasy and reality in the, in the same way. I guess the, the thing that I do find fascinating, though, from a political point of view, is that this island and this story is about this island is still contested space. And what is the political ideology or value that perhaps the filmmaker wants to convey? Because it seems when the, when the Ruskies, as they refer to them, first arrive, they're the an ominous enemy. But then the film halfway through seems to be saying we need to look for some sort of sense of continuity. We need to look for a harmony, a peaceful reconciliation. And maybe that's what this film was trying to do, like look back to World War II and say... We can both live at Chigatan. That was something I'd never actually seen before in film, that the Japanese were occupied by Russians. I wasn't even, never even clicked in my head that something had happened, and I thought the film very skillfully portrayed that. And even though it verged on the sentimental at times, I liked the way it kind of showed that these two very different cultures found some common ground, again, through children. But children are just such a perfect example of innocence that, that transcends all the nonsense that adults have thrust upon them, including war. I, I, look, I think I would have loved this film if I wasn't aware of Studio Ghibli. I still think it's a strong film. It's a beautiful day. And it's gorgeous. Beautiful Blu-ray. It's, it's, it's a really nicely authored Blu-ray as well. That's Giovanni Island. It's available right now on DVD, Blu-ray and various digital platforms courtesy of Mammon Entertainment. On tonight's show we also talked about The Salt of the Earth. That's another film released through Mammon that's screening exclusively at Cinema Nova. And Mummy, which is also at Cinema Nova, is uh, released through Sharmil Films. We're about done. So I'm going to say goodnight. Uh, I still am Thomas Caldwell. <laughs> Josh Nelson being with, with me from the start and played Escape. And I'm just, just emotional and overwhelmed. <laughs> so thrilled to say and thank you to our newest member of the team, Alexandra Heller Nicholas. Thanks, guys. Good Very night. Exciting. We'll see you next week. You have been listening to a podcast from Australia's best known community radio station, 3RRR 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events, and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.